Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Outsmarting Infertility Podcast. I remember a while ago a patient had uh, spoken to me and told me about their experience that they had um, with a doctor and they had been preparing for an in vitro fertilization or IVF procedure um, coming in about half a year to a few months and the patient had asked the doctor um, what they could be doing in the meantime to help support their fertility or to help improve their chances um, of conceiving. And this patient told me that the doctor looked at them and chuckled and said, just don't develop a drug addiction. And that's about it. And I remember, A, the patient's reaction and how they felt quite let down. And I also remember my the visceral reaction I felt uh, listening to this story because I find it it really diminishes the power of the patient um, when they hear feedback like this and it diminishes um, the the feeling of, of reproductive power and it creates this belief that from within us or from within our own uh, realm of decisions and actions that we cannot impact our fertility and it makes the patient feel like they don't have any reproductive power and that they are 100% dependent on this treatment that's coming up. And what I what I believe is that the treatment has a very essential purpose and it is in many cases a life-changing option for patients. But we also need to acknowledge that we're no longer in the 90s where we don't have any research on lifestyle, diet, and its impact on fertility. We're in an age now where we see over 150 to 250 research papers published on a weekly basis, just on the Canadian database, um, which includes studies from all over the world. And we see on a weekly basis more and more research on changes to lifestyle, to diet, to clinical nutrition, to supplements, that have been shown or have been suggested to help support various fertility parameters. And while this may not be a replacement for IVF for a lot of patients, it's very important to acknowledge the power that we have um, you know, within our lives, within our choices, within the um, activities or interventions we choose to help support our power or help support our capacity for fertility and to reproduce. And just like, you know, on this topic in Brazil, they recently published a new research paper and they looked at uh, various patients who have something called uh, elevated DNA fragmentation rates in the sperm cells. So DNA fragmentation rates are basically like these little hairline fractures that can develop along the DNA strand. And we've been seeing with more consistent research um, starting early as back as I think since 2017 that we've been seeing it more consistently, um, studies suggesting that increased DNA fragmentation rates in the sperm cell are actually correlated with decreased fertility, so may reduce the chances of conception per cycle, and it's strongly associated with a significant increase in the miscarriage risk in the first trimester for parent, for patients. And so this is a, a what we call an advanced sperm function test. It's not the same as a basic sperm function test, such as sperm motility or sperm concentration. Um, it's looking at you know what's actually inside 
the cell and the quality or the integrity of the DNA strands. And sperm cells are particularly vulnerable. So sperm cells, in order for them to um, be the size that they are, the body actually removes a lot of the cytoplasm or the cell, cell content, the content inside of the cell. And along with that cytoplasm that's removed to help reduce the size of the sperm head, we actually end up removing a lot of the antioxidants. And antioxidants are what are necessary to reduce um, damage to the, to the sperm DNA. So it reduces the negative or harmful impact of something called oxidative stress, which can increase sperm DNA fragmentation rates. And the sperm cells are missing that crucial component. So they become quite vulnerable to oxidative stress, inflammation, heat stress, etc., which can affect uh, partic- uh, potentially the sperm DNA fragmentation rates. And so they looked at these patients that had high DNA fragmentation rates. And when we're looking at that objective measure, anything above 15%, if we're seeing a total fragment or DNA fragmentation rate higher than 15%, it, we consider it elevated. So among those groups of patients um, that had high and then low DNA fragmentation rates, they put them on a three-month intervention. And in those three months, they changed their lifestyle, they changed their diet, and they prescribed to them some very basic supplements. Some of those supplements included certain omega-3s, uh, it included certain B vitamins in very low doses, a little bit of zinc, a low dose of CoQ10, among other very important antioxidants and micronutrients. And after three months, they assessed these patients that had an elevated DNA fragmentation rate above 15%, what was it at three months after the therapy? So we had a baseline test, and then after three months, we checked again. And after three months of introducing these lifestyle, dietary changes, basic supplements, on average, there was about a 7.2% decrease in the DNA fragmentation rate for these patients that had elevated fragmentation rates at baseline. So we're seeing patients that had 20, 21% fragmentation rates actually come below the 15% mark and into a much healthier range. And that can for some patients be a game changer because bringing that DNA fragmentation rate may potentially actually help to reduce the risk of miscarriage in the first trimester. So for patients where they've had recurrent miscarriages or chemical pregnancies, Um, and they can't figure out why sometimes that DNA fragmentation rate actually is a contributing factor. And same thing for patients that have had failed IVF or ICSI cycles. Um, Having an elevated DNA fragmentation rate for the sperm may actually be correlated with a decrease in the chances of getting pregnant with these treatment cycles. And so by bringing that DNA fragmentation rate down below 15%, it may, may offer them an opportunity to help see an improvement in those actual and outcomes that we're looking for. So a higher pregnancy rate and a higher live birth rate. So how many of those patients went on to actually give birth to live um, baby? And so I I think it just reflects upon, you know, it's when we're going back to that initial story, it's not always the case that there's nothing that can't be done. And I find it's very important to always educate a patient and to share with them all the evidence-based therapies and approaches and treatments which may be of benefit and to have a conversation on what the pros and cons of what this of this research is. Like for example, some of these studies are smaller studies. They have very small um, 
uh, amount of subjects that they're including in the trials. But we're also looking at a very high safety profile. I mean, from introducing some dietary and lifestyle changes, I mean, there have been the majority of studies looking at this type of an intervention that report um, an improvement in, in, the, in the fertility outcomes and the risk of harm is incredibly low. While it may not be zero, um, then there might be some risk. Usually it's a very high uh, safety uh, profile for a lot of these interventions. So it's worthwhile at least having a conversation with a patient and offering to them and providing them the evidence-based information and educating them on it and including them in the decision making that goes around preparing for a treatment like a fertility treatment like IVF. And it's not always just about, um, as his doctor put it, avoiding developing a drug addiction, um, which I feel like just reduces greatly the impact that the patient may actually have on their own health, on their own reproductive capacity, and just saying, you know, there's nothing that can be done, just wait for the treatment. And it actually provides a hands on, uh, very concrete. Um, approach to you know educating a patient saying hey like there's actually all these things xyz that you might want to look into we can discuss in detail and that may be correlated with an improvement in your chances of conceiving and um, you know we're not just talking about one or two studies like earlier this this just this year they published a review looking at over 104 research papers just on diet and fertility not even looking at fertility acupuncture not even looking at um botanical medicine, not even looking at things like meditation, just looking at very basic changes. So <clears throat> that scope gets larger and larger when we look at all the changes that patient can be evaluating and including and in integrating into the treatment in the preconception period, period preparing for IVF. So this is a very important conversation to have. And if you feel like you're kind of sitting on the border right now, just waiting for something to happen, but not sure what to do, it's really important um, to get in touch with a licensed healthcare provider that's educated on this topic and to set up a treatment plan and protocol for you that is fertility friendly and friendly with the IVF procedure as well. So not going way out there and trying all integrative therapies that don't have proper safety trials either. We want to make sure whatever you use actually has a good safety profile and isn't going to decrease the chances of success uh, with IVF where certain herbs uh, certain treatments, we still don't have that kind of research. So we're very careful in what we're actually recommending to patients. So to be also be aware of it's not just do every, anything natural, but very specifically evidence-based interventions that seem to have a high safety profile and may uh, confer some benefit or improvement in fertility treatment success rates. The information covered in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a replacement for medical consultation or medical advice. Please speak with your licensed healthcare provider prior to making any changes to your treatment plan and or medications. Thank you.